promulgating your esoteric cogitations and articulating your superficial sentimentalities, amicable philosophical and psychological observations, beware of platitudinous ponderosities. Are we really the dream police? It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Hello, kitties. And so good to see you once again. Well, this is one of our dream episodes that we wanted to do here at Cheap Talk. We're going to interview one of the authors of Reputation is a Fragile Thing. Welcome to the show, all the way from Scotland, Mr. Mike Hayes. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Very well, very well. We're all big fans. We love your book. Uh, there's nothing else quite like it. And that's why it's going the cheapest price that I've ever seen. It is $80 at this point. Uh, I don't like people getting ripped off like that. No, I understand. So let's talk a little bit about your trick history and how you became aware of Cheap Trick and how you became a fan. I was born in Liverpool in uh, 1957. So in the 60s, I was brought up with uh, all the Beatles music and Dave Clark Five and all that sort of stuff. My dad used to bring records home from uh, from work, you know, and I, I was listening to all that stuff as a kid. Um, but it was really not until around 1970, 71, 72 that I really got switched on to music and, and it was Mark Boland and T-Rex really that, that, uh, that got me hooked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a big fan, I saw the, the band a few times um, and then I went to university and uh, I went and lived in Germany for a year okay. and whilst I was over there, um, <clears throat> Mark was killed. and. Uh, it was a real shock. I, you know, I'd been a real fan of uh, of all the T-Rex stuff and quite obsessive, really. I'd, I'd bought everything. I collected stuff, and there was a big void, really, when uh, when he died. And uh, a couple of months after he died, I uh, I was home and I was talking to a friend of mine um, who was at university with me, and uh, he'd been staying out in France with a family out there whilst I was in Germany. And he said, I just heard a, um, an album out there. This family that I was staying with um, had an album that I think you'd really like. It's by this American band called Cheap Trick, and the album's called In Color. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's fine. That sounds interesting. I'll maybe check that out sometime. But I didn't really give it another thought. And that was sort of the back end of 77. And then in March 78, I was watching TV, and there was this uh, famous old... Uh, English uh, rock show called the Old Grey Whistle Test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it re- really was sort of an iconic program back then, and uh, a lot of bands really got a break through that show, people like Alex Harvey Band and so on. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was watching the show one night, and uh, who was on but Cheap Trick, and I suddenly thought, oh, this is the band that that uh, friend of mine mentioned, you know. So I watched their performance and they played I Want You To Want Me and Clock Strikes Ten and I think there's still stuff knocking around on YouTube um, from that particular broadcast and I thought they were fantastic you know I thought I thought they were great but I was um, I was what 20 20 years of age and um, I didn't really get the image thing you know I thought well yeah the the singer looks cool and the bass player looks like a rock star but those other two guys just you know need to do something about that image because they're just never gonna never gonna make it people are never gonna take them seriously you know Mm -hmm. but um but i really like the music so i eventually went out and um i found the in color album which of course by then had been out a few months and i picked that up and i thought it was thought it was amazing 
Um, and pretty soon after that, uh, Heaven Tonight appeared, so I went and got that, and that was just as good. And, and then I went and sought out the first album, which had never been released in the UK at that time, you know, so I picked it up on import, which I think I even liked better than the other two. And, um, and then I was hooked, you know, and then I sort of got the bug and I had to collect just about everything I could, I could find. I really regret missing out on the first chance to see the band. They toured the UK in the late spring, I think it was, of 78. Mm-hmm. And they, they played at a little club only about 20 miles from where I lived. I was living in um, a place called Litchfield uh, near Birmingham at the time. And they played this little club called the Mayfair. And I was sort of, shall I go? Shall I? You know, I wasn't too sure. I, I just didn't go. And uh, I've regretted it to this day. I think there were about 60 people there, you know? Wow. And, uh, and I really wish I'd gone, but, but I missed it. And the first chance I actually got to see them live was in uh, February 79. And they played uh, the Birmingham Barbarellas Club. They had Roy Wood and Dave Edmonds come up on stage with them, as they tended to do all the time back then. They were just playing a series of UK dates in the winter. Uh, there was snow on the ground. They didn't come on stage till midnight. And they were just absolutely fantastic. You know, I went along there with a few friends from university. I was at university in Birmingham back then, and they were just absolutely amazing. And we met them briefly after the show, and because they weren't very well known, you know, there weren't many people hanging around trying to meet them. Plus the fact it was about 2 a.m. with snow on the ground. <laughs> but, um, but they were great, you know. They were, they were very gracious and friendly, and they signed stuff. And uh, they, they were really nice guys, and... Uh, I guess, you know, because there were very few British fans who really caught on to the band back then, I, I sort of um, maintained that contact every chance I could thereafter, you know? Well, actually, I was speaking to Mike Kissane today, and I believe you met him, you were in his little documentary. How embarrassing is that? No, it's wonderful. It's, his documentary is wonderful. It's my part that's embarrassing. <laughs> no, no, you're fine, you're fine. But he, he said to, to tell you hello. And he always had the idea that Rick and Tom primarily were always disappointed in how they came over in the UK, that their level of popularity. Is there anything yeah. you can say about that? Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably fair. I mean, they did tour a lot back then, which was you know a way to get exposure, but um, they never really had any great success. I mean, when when they released the live version of "I Want You to Want Me." Um, it got featured once, I think, on our Top of the Pops TV show, which was really the thing that affected record sales back then. You know, if you, if you weren't on there, you didn't sell anything. And they got to something like, I don't know, number 29 in the top 30 or something mm. something like that. And that was that was pretty much as successful as, as they ever got. So they developed a sort of a cult following, I, I guess. You know, they, they'd get reasonable crowds turning up at shows, but record sales were always a bit disappointing. And I'm not sure that the UK audience on that got the band, you know. Um, even now, you know, they'll, they'll sell out maybe two or three thousand uh, capacity venues, but they would never go any higher than that over here. Why do you think that is? And what singles primarily took off in the UK that maybe didn't do anything here or vice versa? Well, there were, there were probably only three songs that ever got any radio play over here. There was I Want You To Want Me, of course, which is still played quite regularly on the the rock stations here. There's a, now, there's is that the Budokan version? Yeah, typically, but 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 both get get played a fair bit. There's a, there's a sort of a national 
digital radio station over here called Planet Rock that plays Cheap Trick fairly regularly. And uh, Joe Elliott has a show on there, and he, oh. you know, he sort of showcases them quite a bit. As does Alice Cooper. He has a show every night. And he plays them regularly. In fact, he played the live version of Please, Mrs. Henry a few nights ago, which was wow. amazing. Yeah, One You To Want Me got a fair bit of radio play, but never really um, was hugely successful. Surrender um, gets played occasionally, but wasn't a hit. And, uh, and Dream Police. And Dream Police, I, I guess, is probably the one that gets played most these days. Thank you. The next tune we're going to do is, uh, uh, this, this whole set is, is fairly related. It's about uh, people that, uh, that what? It's sex. Yes, yes, yes. Terrible subject to talk about here in the park. But, yes, it's true. Uh, we have d uh, four demented minds up here. And uh, when you have that... Uh, you usually run into trouble, so this next one is about a guy that's trying to make it with this beautiful girl, even though he's a real uh, dope. And at the end, you'll see what happens. shame and other singles that did well elsewhere really just didn't do anything over here. Hmm. What made you decide to write a book? How did that come about? I guess, like I say, I was a bit of an obsessive and I just wanted to know everything I could, uh, find out everything I could about the band and I was intrigued by the, the sort of the pseudo bio on the in, inner sleeve of the first album, mm -hmm. you know, the Eric Van Lusbard thing. And I, I always yeah. assumed Eric Van Lusbard was a pseudonym. 
but um, I think it was an original, I think it's his real name, and he was an author that um, wrote a bunch of books on ninjas or something, you know? Very and good. He, he wrote the sleeve notes for the first album, and um, that's really got what got me intrigued. Um, this, the bio that was in there just had so many things that clearly weren't, weren't factually correct. It was, it was funny, but it, it clearly was not true. I was just intrigued as to what the, what the truth was, you know? So I started digging around, and of course this was pre, pre-internet, so I yes. just read stuff. I even got to corresponding with the band, and Bunny was always very helpful, and I got letters from, from Rick and Robin as well back then. Very helpful, just answering trivia-type questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And I started to make notes, and I sort of wrote stuff down, and um, <laughs> it just evolved from there, I guess. I ended up with reams and reams of notes, in no particular order, and decided I'd try and do something with them. And um, first step really was to get everything word processed as it was back then. And once I'd got it all electronic, then just sort of resequence it and, and sort of put it into some sort of chronological order. So it wasn't a, a hugely artistic piece of work. It was more like an assembly job, you know, putting, putting together all these notes and joining them together with narrative and, and so forth. And this was, I guess, mid, the mid-1980s. You know, this is, this is way back. I didn't really think much of it, didn't, didn't do much with it. Um, and then, I guess later in the, the decade, I, I spoke to Bunny and he decided, he agreed to, to go through the stuff with me and, and to correct the thousands of mistakes I'd made. So <laughs> one of my prized possessions actually is an original manuscript of the book that he's, he's written on every page. You know, he sort of corrected things and, and added little anecdotes in and, you know, oh, no, this wasn't 1973, this was 1974. You know, just, just all really interesting stuff. But even then, you know, I, I had no real expectations or aspirations to, uh, to try and publish the thing. Um, and that didn't really... Nothing really came of that until, until the early 1990s. And... Uh, I was over in the States, um, <clears throat> developed a good friendship with a guy called John Candace, who you may know. John was in Dallas, a uh, massive fan of the band. I'd met him at a gig, um, I think it was the uh, On the Motley Crue tour when um, Cheap Trick was supporting Motley Crue over here in 86, or it might have been, it might have been in 88 when, when they played um, in London. But I met John then and, and kept in touch, and he was just a mine of information, and he, and he was known to the band, and he ended up being their merchandise guy. Oh, um, yeah. But very sadly, he, he passed away a few years ago, but John was uh, a huge support of, um, of what eventually became the, 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 the sort of the book project, you know? Yeah, John was, John was a great guy, and um, uh, I sort of met up with him, um, and over the course of the next two or three years, the word got out that I was looking for somebody who might know how to get a book published, you know, because there was nothing on the band and they talked about it for a while, but nothing had ever, nothing had ever transpired. <clears throat> and it was, I would say, probably about uh, 94, 95 before it actually started to take shape. And um, at the first uh, Trick Fest, um, Bunny... Um, sort of very graciously put a little note in the the official program for the trick fest he, he wrote uh, hey my case let's write a book and at that time you know it seemed like something that would be 
fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one else seemed to have taken the, the time and trouble to, to do it. You know, I wasn't a professional writer. Um, I worked in, in management. Um, I was an HR guy, still am an HR guy. Uh, I enjoy writing. I've done sleeve notes and that sort of thing a couple of times, but I'm not a, I'm not a writer by profession at all. But I enjoyed doing it, and I pulled a lot of information together. Again, it was mainly you know pre-internet, so um, it was just a case of talking to people, um, reading a lot of stuff. Um, there's an awful lot of credits in the book because a lot of the stuff in there wasn't my own original stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but eventually, um, I, uh, I got to the stage of um, finding a um, an author. Uh, a guy called Ken Sharp, who just put together his own book called uh, Power Pop, yes. which featured um, featured a chapter on Cheap Trick. So I got in touch with um, with Ken and uh, told him that I was starting to pull together a manuscript with the idea for a book on uh, Cheap Trick and asked him whether he would have any interest in helping to get it published. Well, Ken had got his own um, sort of little publishing arrangement. Um, he'd set up a company called Poptastic and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know all the details but um, you know, that's how the, uh, the PowerPoint book had, had finally uh, seen the light of day. And I sent Ken some stuff and uh, he uh, agreed to work with me on it and so over the course of the next couple of years um, Ken sourced uh, a lot of photographs. Um, he did all the hard work in terms of getting the book uh, into shape, um, he Americanized certain sections of it. You know, a lot of the intro is uh, is Ken's work, and there's the sections throughout the book where he's um, adapted it more for, I guess, an American audience. You know, and, and and made reference to things that perhaps I wouldn't have been so aware of. Um, but um, you know, the main thing with Ken, he was he was a believer in the project, and. Um, he was a strong advocate for, for what I was trying to do. And we got to the point in, I don't know, probably be about 96, 97, where it looked like things were going to take off. I'd, I'd got all the manuscript um, checked out by Bunny. I'd been asked to take certain things out. You know, I, there's a lot of criticism, um, valid criticism, I guess, online about about the book, which is which is fair enough. People are entitled to their own opinions, but people often criticise the fact that there's not much about the band's personal lives in there. Well, that's mainly because they asked me to take it out, you know? Right, right. Uh, which, which I did, you know, out of respect for them. I, 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 wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put something in there that they wouldn't want me to put in there. And so I got to the point where, although the book had been edited quite a lot, I was happy enough with with the content and we were all ready to go and then I got a message I think it was probably Carla that that passed the message on to me I mean Carla's been you know wonderful um, in terms of uh, you know helping me over the years and getting me into gigs and all sorts of stuff but at that time I think she was working for I think it was probably Larry Mazer who was the manager at the time mm-hmm. and I got a message through which basically said that um, yeah they were fine with me um, progressing the, the book to publication but insisted that it carried a disclaimer which said that the band had had no involvement with it at all and um, at that point I was I was ready to give up you know I just thought oh, it's just ridiculous you know there's no way 
um, anyone's going to be interested in an unofficial book. Anyone could put together an, an unofficial book and it just wouldn't have any credibility. So I just, I was quite happy to, to just sort of consign the whole thing to history. I'd enjoyed doing it. It was good fun. Made a lot of contacts, spoken to a lot of people, you know, the Fuse guys and stuff. It had been really um, a labor of love, great fun, but I just didn't think it was going to happen. Um, but it was Ken, really, who encouraged me to to persist. You know, he, he maintained that even with the disclaimer that, that said that there'd, there'd been no involvement, then um, yeah, there'd still be a, a market for it and an interest in it. And in truth, Ken, at that time, my only uh, objective in terms of um, the outcome was to avoid losing any money on the project. <laughs> you know, if, it, if, it got, if it got published fantastic you know what a, a, a great kick I'd get out of that it's a I guess it was an ego thing in some ways but I didn't want to lose money on it and uh, so the deal I ended up doing with Ken was such that you know he financed everything and um, <laughs> yeah I guess he did better than me in terms of the actual success of the book but he stood the risk so I think that's right, fair enough right. you know and um, and he encouraged me to to go through with it so um, so we did, and you know, mainly through all his efforts in terms of organising the registration and the distribution and all that sort of stuff, uh, the book was published in uh, February '98. And I think it's still the only one out there, which is pretty strange. But um, yeah, I was very, very pleased. We got some unexpectedly uh, kind reviews, which was a bonus.
first pressing, there was only a thousand copies made of the first edition. They they sold out fairly quickly, and and I I could probably sell my car and buy one of those. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. The book was more expensive um, than I would have liked, but I guess you know because we'd only produced it in a limited edition, we had to cover the cost. There really right. wasn't any any profit to be made from it, but we but we didn't want to lose money on the thing. So um, I think it was originally priced at something like twenty four ninety five or something like that, and that first edition sold out fairly quickly. And then um, we produced a second one. There were a couple of differences actually in the second one. A couple of the photographs were were different. We got we got hold of some new material, and so the second edition was slightly different, but um, you know not not to speak of. And we produced another thousand, and that went pretty quickly as well. We eventually produced a third um, issue. So. That third thousand was ended up being the final um, edition, and that took quite a long time to sell out. You know, that was that was sort of two or three years before that sold out. So in total, you know, the books only sold about three thousand. But I'm told that's you know that's reasonably good for a, a book of its kind. So right, you know, we were but, very very happy with that. But how many times has it been resold? <laughs> and that, that that does frustrate me. I mean, it, it really does frustrate me because. Obviously, you know, neither Ken nor I make anything from that, but that's right. not the issue. The, the issue for me is that, you know, people are getting ripped off. You know, I, I, would, I would never claim that it was a great book or anything like that, but it is still the only book out there about them, you know. And mm-hmm. if I was doing it now, then I would have access to so much more stuff, you know, so much more material through, through the Internet and, and what have you. Um, and what has been really interesting is that in the years since the book came out, a lot of people have... I've either made contact with me, or I've been lucky enough to make contact with other people, like like Pete Kamita, for example. Mm-hmm. And I've got so much more material, you know, that that, that could go in there. And uh, I have actually updated the manuscript to the extent that the original book went, you know, so up until the beginning of 1998. I'm not really sure I've got the the motivation or the enthusiasm to to bring it up to date, to be honest. Even though a few people have sort of encouraged me to try and do that. Well. You know what's coming, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Here's, here's a wheelbarrow of encouragement. There is not a week that does not go by that I don't get somebody saying, why don't they reprint that book? Or why don't they e-book that? I am uh, telling you <laughs> that there is a multitude of people that want this. And if we have to do a Kickstarter campaign, we will do it. There's, there's a few reasons why that might not be as easy as it sounds actually mm-hmm. um, I spoke to Ken Sharp about that the first time somebody suggested it to me and, and he, he said that to actually reprint the thing would be would be pretty expensive and you know it's into the several thousands of dollars to to do that right uh, and, and in order to justify that then we really would have to be confident that, that there was sufficient demand out there so a few times I put stuff on the um, on the cheap trick message boards, trying to gauge the level of interest, you know, and and believe me, you know, it, if I had twelve people telling me they'd like to buy a copy, that that have done well, you know. Yeah. And we really need to, needed to be talking about several hundred for it to be financially viable, you know. Mm-hmm. The ebook idea I like very much. I mean, I I've got a, a PDF version of the updated manuscript which I've converted into Kindle format. So I've, I've actually got it on my Kindle, you know? Oh, wow. And I, w- and I would love for it to be made available like that. But again, the technicalities of that, um, 
you know, uh, I, I would welcome some some support and some help. But you know, the the irony of the whole thing, and this this probably sounds ridiculous in this day and age, but the only version that I've got electronically is the updated version. Mm-hmm. The original text, as it as it was published, I don't have in electronic form. So, uh, to my mind, um, the most practical thing to do, as I don't have the book brought up to 2013, would be to issue it in its original form. And I simply don't have it in that form, you know? Okay, well, he, let me run this by you. What if I get a thousand monkeys, <laughs> and we have them type a page each, and we'll just keep doing it till the book's done? Ken, believe me, if, if there was the demand there, then I would love to do it, you know, mm-hmm. because it, it really does frustrate me when I see people having to pay silly prices for it, you know. I mean, I, I've got I've got maybe four or five copies here at home, mm-hmm. and uh, there's one copy that I've been sending around and loaning out to people, because I'd rather they had a chance to read that if they want to read it than, than pay, you know, 80 bucks or more on, online. But... Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, there's there's a guy in Chicago who has my loan copy and has had my loan copy for the last two years. So you I think scoundrel, I'll give it back. Lucky to see that again. I suspect. Right.
he's a whore. Well, here's the thing. Um, I've actually, there's been, I've, I've owned two copies. I'm currently without a copy right now. Mm-hmm. Both times I needed money really bad, and both <laughs> times people were like, "Thank you for selling me your book. I have been looking for this thing," and I'm like, "Please take good care of it," you know. And it's uh, it's always been a tough thing. But uh, there's so many of us that want to do this. How can we make this happen? What do you think would work? A Kickstarter campaign? Could we start a Facebook page to? do the reputation as a fragile thing and maybe you could add the updated version if people buy it you know if, if enough people will buy it is is that a possibility yeah I mean I'm, I'm receptive to anything but I have to respect the fact that you know Ken's the publisher so I guess in terms of copyright and that sort of stuff I, I couldn't do anything without his approval I'm sure he'd be fine with that but mm-hmm. you know I j- just out of respect for him I would need to clear anything anything through Ken, but no, in principle, I'd be, I'd be delighted if people could get hold of it for free or could get hold of it without having to pay silly prices on, on eBay if, if they wanted. I, I suspect the demand isn't quite as high as, as, as you suggest, but nevertheless, it's very flattering that there are people still want to read it, you know? Right, but if you, if you take a look at it as an e-book thing, and, and you know, I may be speaking out, because I've never printed an e-book or anything, so I'm, I'm probably speaking out of my head, um, but if if we get the cost to a point where people could get a reward for purchasing the updated version and just without the actual cost of having to go through the printing process and all that we've got to find a way to make it uh good for ken sharp and good for you yeah no i i i'd be delighted i i I wouldn't want to, I'm not looking to make any money out of it at all. If I could make it available for free to people, then I'd be delighted to do that, you know, subject to Ken's endorsement, you know? Right, right. I mean, the the irony of of the whole thing is that I actually got to the point a few years ago where um, Carla got approval through through the management at the time. I can't remember whether it was Dave Fry era or or before Dave. but um, they were willing to carry the book through the official merchandise channels, you know. But oh, wow. back, then, back then we didn't have copies, and that was subject to us, you know, reproducing it and stuff. And it just never got off the ground. But that would have been, you know, a really good vehicle to 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 market the book if we could have got it through the official channels. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, like I say, I'm not um, I don't, I'm not looking to make any money out of this, but right, I'll speak right. to Ken and uh, I'll find out whether that seems seems viable or not. Well, I want you to know, as a fan of the band and a fan of you and Ken Sharp, I've I've asked Ken to be on this show, but he's a bit of a recluse when it comes to this sort of thing. <laughs> no, Ken, Ken is a very talented guy. I mean, you probably know he's he, he released CDs as well as published and yes. written books and stuff. You know. Yes. You you mentioned that the band had requested at one point that certain real aspects of their lives be taken out and. I've always been fascinated that the fact that the band has always used misinformation in a comical sense to kind of protect their actual real lives. Any yeah. comment on that? Um, I think I think it is literally just tongue in cheek. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing. There are no real skeletons in the cupboards. Um, they like to protect their privacy, I guess, and, and you know, I think we should all respect that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd put some stuff in there about um, Robin's first marriage ending. I'd put some stuff in there about um, people who are a little bit more peripheral to the band, like Todd Howarth and some mm-hmm. of the stuff that he was doing. And, 
you know, they, they just they just wanted a lot of that extraneous stuff removing. And right. I guess at the time it was slightly frustrating, but you know, I was I was more than happy to to comply because they were willing to let me go ahead and and, and progress this. You know, and, mm-hmm. um, and at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I was really far more interested in the band musically than 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 in their their domestic circumstances. Same thing here. Absolutely. I, I really don't have any uh, interest in their Aunt Bernice or whoever, you know. I just I just kind of want to know how they work as a band and, and as a unit and, and how they got to the albums being what they were more than anything. That's kind of where I'm at. Absolutely. I mean, I've got one copy right in front of me here that all the band have signed, you know. And Oh, my God. That would be amazing. <laughs> and... Um, Bob Alford, who took the cover photo, signed it, and Jack Douglas signed it, and Mike Graham, who took some of the photos, signed it, and Roy Wood, who wrote the foreword, signed it. You know, it's it's this is my sort of pride and joy. This, you and, know? and you, that is that's a trophy piece, as far as I'm concerned. That's yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's good, good to have. So I obviously want to hang on to this one, but I, it's ironic, you know, that the that the band was so, or rather, their management was so insistent on the disclaimer because in um, 1999 at Trickfest 3 I was in the audience and um, <clears throat> halfway through one of the songs they stopped playing and they called me up on stage and they presented me with a personalized platinum disc for doing this you know wow and that's which which is just fantastic you know that, to me that was that was tremendous endorsement you know and and, and i was <clears throat> i felt really humble very very grateful um and yet ironically the book still says the author acknowledges that this book was undertaken without any involvement assistance cooperation or, pro- or approval of the banshee trick <laughs> wow well i think that was just them being protective yeah i guess so i guess the legal people have to insist on that sort of thing in case somebody finds something in one of the plus they could it also let them free to deny anything i mean you could have printed you know anything and they could have said yeah yeah but that even after they went through it and said oh yes this i do this do this do this then they still had the freedom to like say ah now that they could always deny it and and that gave them a certain freedom that's true enough wow well you've had a pretty good ride as a fan uh, not many people can say they've been given a uh, <laughs> a record. That's uh, that is awesome. Yeah, that was that was very special. That was a that was a great. Uh, <clears throat> the, the more I think about it, there's, there's a, there were a couple of little things that happened around the book that I, I, I never I never got to talk about. I mean, it was just opening the cover here that reminded me that about <clears throat> Roy Wood writing the foreword to the book mm-hmm. because I, I'd I'd always been quite a fan of. The move, and then Wizard, and early ELO, and stuff, you know. And uh-huh. I, I knew that Roy Wood obviously had written California Man, and um, that the band had played down on the bay, and what have you. They eventually went on and recorded um, Rock and Roll Tonight and Brontosaurus. But uh, <coughs> Roy Wood had always been a big fan of the band, and had been on stage with them a couple of times in in, in England. <coughs> Excuse me. So I went and saw him with his own band um, at a small gig in a place called Southport in Lancashire near where I, I used to live, not far from Liverpool. And um, I told him about the book and I'd asked, I asked him if he would, if he would write something and, and he did. And so the foreword 
to, to reputation as a fragile thing is, is, is from Roy Wood. And ironically, most people in the States haven't a clue who he is, I think, you know? Yeah, it's kind of sad. It's kind of yeah. sad. Uh, what is your favorite Cheap Trick album? Dream Police, I think. Now, what uh, makes that Dream your Pol- fave? Dream Police was the full package for me, you know, and, and I mean, li- literally the full package because I, I, I loved the packaging as well, you know, so mm-hmm. it was, um, yeah, that was great. And, and I'd heard um, a couple of songs, I think, off Dream Police a long time before it um, it finally came out because that, that first show that I saw at Birmingham Barbarella's in, in February 79, which was, what, seven or eight months before the album came out, they played... They played writing on the wall, I remember, in that particular show, you know, and
I, I just always loved that album. I played it to death, you know, and uh, and I still really love that album. Um, the first album I like very much. Um, In Color and Heaven Tonight are both, you know, real, real classics. After that, you know, I guess there were there were patchy albums. There were some individual tracks that I I really liked. Um, I really liked the latest. I thought that was a great return to form, but I thought that Julian Raymond did a fantastic job in, in, in that one. You know, I think a lot of the stuff that he did really was working on um, songs that originally had been, you know, discarded, old, old demos that they'd re-recorded, and he'd sort of created a uniformity of sound with that album, which I really, really enjoyed. But then I'd, I'd also really liked uh, Woke Up With A Monster. You know, most people didn't really like that album but I quite like that I quite like the sound of that you know and, and one of my all-time favorite cheap trick songs probably the cheap trick song that I play more than anything else which most people have hardly even heard of is is off that album and that's the song let her go ah great track great track you know, I, just, I just love that and, and of course there's a bit of a story around that that track as well because they they published it without the the names of the composers listed you know so there's a, there was a bit of intrigue about it as well but yeah I like that album too you know but the other albums yeah there were some tracks that were, were real standouts and others that perhaps I wasn't quite as enthusiastic about but yeah there's not none of their stuff that I that I dislike of course you know well I thought woke up with a monster was a good return to form in a lot of ways like just the track woke up with a monster is just killer that could have been on their first album yeah, indeed. I mean, this, I think there's some really, really good songs on that. You know, Didn't Know I Had It is just a, a wonderful song. Um, you know, Never Run Out of Love, I guess, is a bit a bit sappy, but I, I, st I still really like it. And um, What about You're All I Want to Do? <laughs> ironically, although I like the, the video for that, and of course it was a single, um, <clears throat> I didn't like that so much because I, d I didn't like the lyrics. You know, I just thought the lyrics were really... Um, the part about it, I always wanted a younger sister, older sister, that kind of thing, or well, no, I, not really. Just just the chorus, you know. You're all I want to do with my time, you know. I, mm -hmm. I just thought it was just a bit. I don't know, not not very imaginative, but that's just a subjective opinion, right? You know? So it's not not one of my favorites. So no. it's it's a lot of fun to um, play on the acoustic guitar and you know pretend you're a Beatle for a while. <laughs> I bet. Um, what's, you know, you mentioned the word patchy, which I thought was a, that's a very English phrase. I don't <laughs> think, uh, you know, over here we'd say, well, that one stank, so, or stunk, or <laughs> sucked. So, <laughs> um, which is the patchiest Cheap Trick album, if you will, the one that you go, ugh, that's up? Um, probably the only ones that I never play are um, Special One and uh, The Doctor. Um, and there are good tracks on both of those, but I, I don't play them so, so often. And Special One, I think, was the first album that, on first listening, I just wasn't particularly enthusiastic about playing it, it, it again. Just, you know? It just didn't jump out to you. Say again? It, it just didn't jump out to you. No, not at all, no. I just, I was really, I, I'd, to some extent, I'd sort of switched my allegiance a bit as well back, back then, you know. I, I'd, um, I'd become a little bit frustrated with... Uh, with some of the things that were that were going on, and I'd seen a, a young uh, band support Cheap Trick back in 2002, who'd really blown me away. And I'd sort of which band was that? It's a Norwegian band called Span, S P A N, oh. and uh, they supported uh, Cheap Trick on the UK on a UK tour. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And they were just they were just absolutely amazing. You know, one of the best live bands I'd ever seen. And I've seen <laughs> I've been around a bit. I've seen a lot of the the, the really big bands. You know, but these these were just um, a young a young band, guys in their mid twenties, I guess. Um, and they were just incredible musicians, made you know, fantastic music. And they were they were the irony. I guess is that there were four very distinct personalities in the band, very much like Cheap Trick. Wow. You know, they had that same sort of vibe about them. They were Norwegian, but you, you wouldn't know it to converse with them because, like most Scandinavians, their English was probably better than mine is, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just—they were just a fantastic band. And I went to see them. Ended up seeing them twenty something times in a couple of years, and I went to. Uh, Norway to see them a few times, and uh, they were they were fantastic. And I, I guess my allegiance switched really. I mean, they were making really great music, and at that time, I was perhaps not quite as enthusiastic about the stuff that Cheap Trick was doing. Um, well, <coughs> but I think sadly, everybody Stan themselves broke up in two thousand and five, um, and their lead singer, a guy called Jarla Bernhoft, who recently was on the Ellen show and I think on the, on Conan recently he's now becoming a pretty successful you know solo artist he just just moved to New York and hmm. um, he, he's gonna go places he's playing a different style of music to to spam but yeah they're probably the only band who I've ever been um, as enthusiastic about as I, as I was for the cheap trick for so long you know I think that it's just natural for a band with the longevity of cheap trick or you know kiss or whoever there's going to have those times when you're more excited about a band than you are at other times, and a lot of it has to do with material and also where you are in your own life. Absolutely, yeah, complete, completely get it. Our uh, research staff, which is BJ Cramp, came up with some <laughs> questions for you, and why don't we go through the ones that uh, you have answers for, if any? <laughs> yeah, very, very few, probably, okay. because um, you know a lot of this stuff is from my... Um, from my musical past, if you like, and uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I don't have a photographic memory, so a lot of this stuff um, is sort of just lost in the mists of time, I'm afraid. But I'll do my best. Yeah, okay. I, I know one thing you wanted to ask me about was a, a guy called Nick uh, Nick Pamilia. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now that's that's an interesting one because uh, <laughs> I just did a bit of digging myself, and I, I I think I found who the guy is. According to BJ, uh, Nick. I think it's P-U-M-I-L-I-A. Yeah. This Nick Pamilia was an economics teacher at BJ's high school who claimed or implied that he had once been a member of Cheap Trick. What can you tell us about that? No, I mean, uh, if, if that's true, then it's news to me. I mean, Nick Pamilia is, is still out there. Um, you, know, <laughs> you can Google him. He's, he's doing sort of multimedia stuff. Um, his profile says he was an economics teacher and all this sort of stuff. I think he's in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, or around that area. I think Hello, he's from Wisconsin. Lewis Park originally, so the geography's right. But um, no, I, I'd never, I'd never heard of him until you mentioned the name to me. You know, there are a few guys from the past that a lot of people won't be familiar with that um, you know I sort of unearthed in in, in researching the book. Um, some stuff, in fact, that didn't come to light until after the book was published. But I, I didn't know, for example, um, for a long time, that um, Cheap Trick's first bass player was a guy called Stuart Erickson. Stu, um, I think I'm right in saying that Stu passed away uh, just a couple of years or so ago. Um, 
if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was Bunny that told me that Stuart had passed away, but he was actually the original um, bass player with Cheap Trick who rehearsed with them back in 73, and he sent me a bunch of stuff. He sent me some uh, rehearsal stuff, he sent me a, 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 quite a lot of live stuff, and some fantastic photographs of the band back there. You know, Rick wearing the, the strangest headgear, you know, not a baseball cap, but things like a it looked like a more like a bowler hat, you know. I mean, just, <laughs> just some amazing things, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Stu wasn't with the band for very long, and, and and he moved on. He was replaced by a guy called Rick Shaluga, and I think Rick Shaluga is probably slightly better known. And he he went on and uh, was in a band called E I E I E I O, who made a couple of of albums in the in the late seventies, I think. Which and actually so, sounds so like Tom it could was, have been you know, it. Was third in line, really. So Tom was the third bass player. Wow. Yeah, effectively, yeah. Amazing. Um, well, we have some questions, and I'll just ask them, and you can say don't pass or whatever, okay? <laughs> I'll probably be saying pass on most of them. All right. <laughs> was Surrendered recorded with Jack Douglas during the first album sessions? Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, Surrender was recorded with different lyrics yes. before before the version that ended up on, on the Heaven Tonight album, but I think that was, that was recorded... Uh, after the first album sessions. Well, we're going to play a live track right now with some very different lyrics, so enjoy this. Okay. Art on the trail. Now that, three people laughed at that. Okay, now this one's called Surrender. Oh, how long I think he's got to pounce My 
BJ wants to know if you have any insight as to why they chose to make the first album so caustic, dark, and angry, heavy, etc. They had several seemingly obviously potential hit singles in their arsenal, but it seems like they made a very aggressive album, and it almost has a punk type thing to it. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think they saw themselves as a singles band at all back then, you know, and I think that what the first album did was to capture the feel of their live shows. I mean, you'll have heard, you know, recordings of some of the the live shows from 75 and 76, and they're they're really pretty out there, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the stuff that they did, some of the covers, some of the versions of the covers they did, like Mrs. Henry and and Dealer Dealer, and, you know, there's some really quite obscure covers as well as some... Um, very quirky original songs and I think with the first album they tried to capture that that live feel and I think they, they did it pretty well and mm-hmm. so I think what you what you hear is perhaps more authentic um, and I think that really it was the second album that that bucked the trend because I think that was where the softening came in I don't think it was that the first album went in a deliberately dark direction I think it was more that the second album lightened up a bit you know okay that makes sense to me, my, my two favorite Cheap Trick albums, and, and this changes from time to time, but it's almost always the first self-titled album, and right now, the 97 self-titled album. Mm-hmm. There's just something about those two albums. There's an honesty to them, to me. Yeah, I mean, I like the I like the first album very much. Um, 97, yeah, not, I'm, not as, I'm not as keen on that, to be honest with you. I mean, there's, there's, there's some good tracks on there, I think it's interesting that they don't tend to play much of that stuff live anymore, you know? Yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some of the set lists recently, and I, I think it's great that they're playing so many more varied um, sets these days, you know? Absolutely. But at the same, at the same token, um, a couple of the recent set lists, there was nothing at all from the last 25 years, you know? Yeah, well, again, that goes with That's longevity. It absolutely is a shame. Let's talk about Eau Claire. Was there ever a complete song to that or that you've ever heard anything of? Or No, I mean, Rick um, sang a few bars of that at one of the Trick Fest shows in the, you know, in the rehearsals and stuff. Um, and obviously they, they, they re-recorded or they recorded it or a version of it for, I think it was the Rockford album. But, um, but no, I don't think there was ever a a complete version back then and the song that eventually had the title Eau Claire was just I think they just used the title for the for that sort of live snippet on on the Heaven Tonight album how much of at Budokan do you feel was overdubbed do you have any thoughts on that yeah a fair bit I think I think that a lot of the bass was redone and from what I remember reading um, when the album was originally recorded it hadn't been mic'd up properly I don't think they'd really anticipated it having the the mass appeal and eventually exposure that it got you know so it was done pretty much on the cheap as far as i can as far as i understand you know and what is interesting to me though is that there's more than one version of it out there um i can't remember exactly what the distinction is but um i've got a few um vinyl editions as well as cd and tape editions and some of them a couple of them are different you know there's actually they've actually used different takes and i think for example on um the original cd release of budokan they didn't bother overdubbing some of robin's vocals when they went a bit hoarse towards the end of the gig whereas on the original vinyl edition it still sounds pristine you know so there's, there's some stuff that clearly they did 
overdub just because it, it sounded better. But I think that um, from what I remember reading, but I don't really have any insight, um, they had to redo quite a bit of the bass work because of the way in which the, the show was originally recorded. But again, as you know, the actual Budokan album, the original album, wasn't wasn't all taken from the Budokan venue anyway. I think most of it was actually recorded in Osaka, if I remember rightly. Very interesting. Um, what can you tell us about the Found All the Part recordings and how that came to be about? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's everyone knows now that you know the stuff about them being from 75, 76, 77, 78. That's that's just not true. The the live day tripper wasn't wasn't really live. Most most of that was recorded in the studio with a lot of um, applause dubbed on and what have you. Uh-huh. And such a good girl and take me, I'm yours. I think we're both from the January 1980 sessions with with Jack Douglas. Although you know they weren't necessarily new songs. Certainly, take me, I'm yours wasn't a new song. Um, so, um, you know, Can't Hold On was from, was from the Budokan uh, set, of course. Right. So I think it was, you know, there was quite a lot of artistic license in that claiming to be a compilation of material that they'd found from years gone by. That wasn't, that wasn't strictly the case. To your knowledge, was there ever an actual studio recording of Can't Hold On? Um, I'm not sure whether there was an original one, but they did record it in 98, I think, with Steve Albini. So there's, a, there's okay. an Albini version. Right, right, right. Now, you mentioned G- uh, Dream Police is your favorite album. Yeah. Don't you think that that should have turned them into major superstars, or do you feel that perhaps All Shook Up being so different might have thrown the momentum off? Or any thoughts along that line? I, I think that um, they, were, they were the victim of very unfortunate timing, ironically, because with Budokan being successful, um, Dream Police sort of sat in the can for months and months and I think if that had come out when it was ready to come out which was probably around February March um, 1979 then that, that may well have, have been the um, the lever that they needed but everything I think um, graduated towards the live record you know and um, that gained them such a, a lot of exposure that, that the, the studio album was then sort of shelved um, hidden away and, and uh-huh. you know it was it was September October 79 when it finally came out I still thought it was a fantastic album you know but I think that um, had it come out a little bit earlier it may have got the critical acclaim that um, that it deserved um, I think it was unfortunate though that because the band had become um, moderately uh, successful on the back of um, Budokan and, uh, and Dream Police as is so often the case, you know, the critics then had the knives out, and as soon as somebody's successful, they want to knock them down again. And all shook up, came out, and uh, it was it was panned over here. You know, the, the critics really went to town and all shook up, and they didn't like it at all. So um, that you know, the bubble had burst. I think really, in a sense, um, it was the same over here, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I, which is unfortunate. You know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of all shook up. I mean, there's some there's some great songs on it. Um, you know the, the first couple of songs I love. I love World's Greatest Lover. A um, couple of couple of tracks on the you know the, the second side of the original vinyl are really really cool. Um, some of the quirky stuff, Huda King. You know I could take it or leave it really, but no, generally it's a, it's a pretty strong album, but not as good as Dream Police in my book. Do you think that George Martin had any effect on the album being so eccentric or different? Or no, do you think it think just so. came from the band itself? 
yeah, I think it came from the band. I think that, um, you know, he, he, there's a good sound on the album. I, I think that the production's strong and um, the engineering, you know, Jeff Emmerich's been around forever and, you know, he, he, he got a good sound out of the band. There's no doubt about that. So, no, I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say that he was instrumental in, in the nature of the material at all. Well, I'm a huge Beatle fan, so when I found out that they were working with George Martin, it was like, yes! And, <laughs> and I was yeah, like... It seemed like a logical step, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They were called the American Beatles over in Japan. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a little uh, feather in their cap, if you ask me. talk about the the current trick situation at all or no I, I don't mind talking about it i i mean my own personal view is that i would love to see the you know the the four i was going to say the original four technically they're not the original four but you know the, the, the four that everyone thinks of as cheap trick i'd love to see them all 
playing together again. I think it's really sad that, you know, there are lawsuits flying back and forth. And the more that that intensifies, the less likely it is that, that they'll get back together again. But you, know, you, you never say never. And, and we've seen some quite acrimonious splits in, in the past that, that have ultimately been healed. And, you know, money, money can often be the catalyst for that sort of thing. But Correct. Uh, I would love to see the four of them back together, but having said that, um, I think that Dax is a competent drummer. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no expert. I suspect that Bunny is a technically more accomplished drummer, but Dax, I think, is very competent. I think the bands sound good. They sound tight, and they sound happy. I think that's the the, the big thing. I think they've um, they've really enjoyed um, the freedom over the last couple of years to play longer sets, and whether whether Bunny's bad back had contributed to the fact that they couldn't play such long sets, I, I, I don't know. I have no insight into that. But they've certainly played more varied sets recently, and mm -hmm. uh, I think that fans have, have, have enjoyed that. Um, but I don't think, you know, I, I think that most fans would say that they would, they would have preferred Bunny to have remained in the band, but I think Dax does a very good job. I agree with you 100%. And again, we don't want to uh, get into their personal lives or whatever. Um, do you think that there's any chance that by this actually going to court that it may uh, heal some things in a way, like maybe set up the perimeters of what can and cannot be done as far as new recordings? And, you know, basically the, the lines will be drawn and there'll be a clear understanding of what everybody's entitled to. I really don't know. I mean, I. I originally hoped that, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I won't, I won't talk about it, but I'm, I'm aware that there are, you know, a couple of individuals in particular who, um, who don't get on. Right. Uh, whether they would be willing to work together again, I'm just, you know, I'm just not sure. But um, you, you would like to think that, um, you know, in the cold light of day, common sense will prevail, and you right. know, they'll be grown up about it, and even if they don't. Um, if they don't become good friends again, hopefully they'll still be able to to work together. But I don't know. The more things that uh, emerge, and you know, the way that Dave Fry is now no longer part of the the band, and he's he sort of seems to be, um, you know, if the press reports are accurate, he seems to be in the bunny camp, as it were. Just mm -hmm. tends to widen the rift, which I think all fans would agree is is just very very sad, and no one likes to see that. Absolutely. Um, you know, no one likes to take sides, but ultimately we're all here because we're Cheap Trick fans. Right now is when we should be seeing, like, the Cheap Trick 40-year documentary and the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And there's just seems like a lot of things that could be happening right now that are not happening probably because of this sort of thing. Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, the, the, the band are still, you know, doing a few different things. Uh, they've recently been playing, you know, Sgt. Pepper and Budokan. Uh, sets in, in, in you know one gig and that sort of stuff and you know they're trying to mix it up and do do more varied things but um, if you think about it the the gap since the latest is the longest gap that there's been between Cheap Trick albums and there's no immediate sign of uh, a new album being released so I can only assume that these legal wranglings are, are, what, are what's preventing that which is really sad you know because I thought the latest was a was a really great album and it would have been it would have been fantastic to get another one of that quality coming up, you know? I agree, I agree. Have you heard the one-on-one -on -one era Ghost Town demo with Rick singing? Yes, um, but it's it's more like a guide vocal. I mean, it, it isn't it, it isn't intended to be a, a final version. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's him singing in, in quite a high 
false vocal, but I think it, it was only just as a, you know, for guide purposes. It was never intended to be um, released with him singing. How much does it bear resemblance to what later wound up on Lap of Luxury? Yeah, it's very similar. It's not very different at all. Uh, well, Rick always said that uh, Diane Warren didn't really do much to get her credit for the co-writes. So. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. It's, it's, and that was my first thought when I heard it, you know, that she really hadn't contributed a great deal to the song. Wow. I'll have to track that down. Well, my, my favorite uh, Cheap Trick song has never been played live. What is apart it? From, apart from um, a few bars at rehearsal for Trickfest 1, and that was uh, Let Her Go. Oh. Um, so I would love to hear them play that live sometime, but in terms of stuff for your show, gee, I don't know. Um, I really like um, what they've done with Closer um, on, the live, uh, on the live arena, because on the latest album, it's much too short. Ah, and they extend it live, and it just sounds so much better like that, you know. So if you have a recording of that, that would be great. Okay, definitely we'll look into that.
there's a, a Pete Kamita uh, song called Fool Yourself, which actually is quite good, that was recorded around that time. Did he write I Can't Take It? According to Robin, Robin said, I wrote it on acoustic guitar in about 15 minutes. What do you know? He did claim to have written it, and the truth's probably somewhere between the two. It's probably something that he started to write and Robin finished or something like that, you know? Uh After Woke Up With A Monster, was there talk of doing another album for them on Warner Brothers, or... What, what, no, what I mean, pretty, pretty much all, all, all the guys that had been instrumental in getting Cheap Trick to Warner Brothers left the label. So they were left without any champions at Warner Brothers, really. So um, that was the point at, re- at which they started to label shop and, and they moved, because of Ted Templeman's association with Warners, they moved away from him. And they, somewhat strangely, they hooked back up with Tom Werman. And considering the fact that he has got some pretty bad press off various band members over the years, mm-hmm. which to his credit, he hasn't really reciprocated it. You know, he hasn't... Right. T- I think he gets a bad deal. With the benefit of hindsight, 
Tom Woman's production on In Colour is a little bit lightweight. Mm-hmm. I think I think Heaven Tonight um, stands up much better, and I think the production on Dream Police is is pre- is pretty good. Um, but the stuff that he did, the demos that he worked on with the band in '96, um, have a really powerful sound. In fact, I, I I prefer the sound that he got with them than than the stuff they did with um, was Ian Taylor on the '97 album. Mm-hmm. Um, and he recorded four or five songs with them. I mean. Radio Lover is the one that you mentioned to me, but he also did um, the original version of uh, Baby Talk, which I think they originally called Down Down, you know, the sort of scat vocal that Robin sings on the original demos, just uses Down Down as the the, the main sort of uh, chorus. They did a a really good song called I Hear You Knocking, not the Dave Edmonds thing, but an original song. And they did a song called um, Hearts on the Line, which they eventually gave to um, Rick Jeffrey and um, House of Lords, and they actually recorded that on on um, their. I think it was the was it the Sahara album. I can't remember. But um, yeah, but the demos that they did with Tom Woman in '96 of those songs were really really good. You know, and I'm, I'm surprised they haven't revisited any of those. Well, Baby Talk, I guess they did with Albini, but I prefer the the cleaner version they did with Woman, to be honest. Yeah, it's very good. What can you tell us about the track Bean by Sick Man of Europe? That was one of um, three songs that they um, recorded in Philadelphia with um, Sick Man of Europe. Um, It was Bean, Ain't Got You, and um, a song called, uh, I think it was Ready I Am, which eventually mutated into um, So Good to See You. Hmm. Okay, we've got just a few more things. We're going to talk about Zeno a little bit. Mm. Uh, Second Generation Woman. What can you tell us about that track, if anything? I'm not sure whether I make reference to that in the book or not, because I've got a, I've got a recording of him singing that, and Lovitis, um, from, I think it might be a 74 live show in Rockford with Cheap Trick. Um, so they they're definitely yeah they're definitely two of the tracks on that live tape that's it's a pretty it's a pretty good live live recording of you
Mike, like I said at the beginning, this was kind of one of our dream interviews. We wanted to have you on the show as soon as possible. We had to like kind of build our brand up a little bit. And it's worked out to where you and I could do this at the same time. And we're very glad to have you on the show. Um, let us know what we can do as far as getting an ebook or, you know, if there's enough people, the actual publication of an updated version. But we really want to get this out to the people that would be interested in having it. Well, it's my pleasure, Ken, and um, thanks very much for uh, for asking me onto your show. I really enjoyed it, and um, I really appreciate the interest that um, that people seem to be showing in um, showing in the book, even all these years on. Well, thanks for being on the show, and you are welcome on any time. And if you ever want to come on, do a roundtable, and we can work it out where you talk about uh, your your favorite album. Uh, maybe we'll have you on with the panel, and we'll just go through each album track by track. Uh, you know, maybe that'll happen someday. Great. I'd be delighted. All right. Well, thank you, Mike, for being on the show, and God bless. Keep cheap tricking. My, my pleasure. See you. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking.